Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 47, our first episode on the Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. And back with me, my esteemed colleague who made the choice for this game, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Wes. We have so much to talk about today. I know. I know. It's a great game, isn't it? It's, uh, it's one, I think, that goes really nicely with Final Fantasy VII. Um, it has plenty of literal side quests, but in itself, it makes a, a delightful side quest within like the Zelda canon as well. So I think it, it fits really well. So I'm excited too. Yeah, so that's something I wanted to ask you about. And um, those watching on YouTube, we have a nine item list of things that we might potentially talk about and outline there. And uh, so Final Fantasy VII has borne several spinoffs. Uh, the Dirge of Cerberus, uh, there's actually going to be a Final Fantasy VII remake for this year, uh, like an action adventure. Maybe it's even already out on the PS4. There's the Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. And what was interesting is that there already were um, differing iterations in the Final Fantasies, but they would all be sort of separated from each other in sort of an Outer Limits or Dark Mirror or Black Mirror sort of way, as in each episode was a standalone episode. Each iteration of Final Fantasy VII was a sta standalone. And it seems sort of like that's what the case is in The Legend of Zelda is, and in The Legend of Zelda 2, and maybe you can tell me a little more, because I think I've only played three of The Legend of Zelda games across the many platforms they've been on, ever since Nint Nintendo, one of the original games, I believe. And maybe you could say something about that. But where we started here was the second game in sort of that series. We, we start right where we left off in... Um, Ocarina of Time. In fact, you have the Ocarina of Time, you have your sword, you have Epona, the, and it says that, it even says that you've met your destiny already. And so we sort of ride into a dark wood where I made some connections to Dante and where he starts when he's about to enter the afterlife. Um, and, and there is also the theory about um, this Link being dead when he starts this, and I want to maybe talk about that separately, but before that even, I, I just wanted to finish asking, why did you want to start with Majora's Mask, the second game in sort of a two-part series, rather than with the Ocarina of Time? Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, I think a case could be made that it's better to go chronologically, but I've, I've been drawn to this game because I think it's the better game of the two. Like, for, wow. for certain... Um, fans that will probably be like blasphemy or whatever but like I think objectively if you look at the two games you basically get like everything good about Ocarina of Time and you take away some of the stuff that was really uh, annoying or like could have been done better um, for me the Majora's Mask like the the mask um, gameplay like gives you a lot more variety in what you can do like as you transform into these different creatures um, it also has such an interesting spin on the traditional sort of Zelda story, right? It, this one's very different from many of the other uh, Legend of Zelda games. Uh, it doesn't really concern the Triforce. You're not rescuing Princess Zelda. You're not right. fighting Ganon, right? So there's a lot of ways in which it, it's it's real different. Um, but all of the, like the gameplay elements are the same or even improved on, and you're in a kind of um, like symbolic, a, a sort of a different symbolic universe. Um, it's not the clear. Termina. Kind of, yeah, it's not the clear kind of, you know, light and dark so much. 
but it's more it's more like you're facing the um, concept of of variety as such, right? Um, like gradations and shades of character um, are kind of the theme of the game, uh, at least as far as I can see, and, and not so much like the ultimate good versus the ultimate evil kind of thing. So in that way, I find it a little more interesting. Um, but you know, like I love all those other Zelda games. Yeah, I've, I've played a number of them. Um, I'd be interested in in delving into them one of these days, but but this one, I mean, you start out looking for uh, Navi, the <laughs> the fairy companion. Um, that's one of the big things that that is pretty annoying about uh, Ocarina of Time. So I, I found that kind of funny actually. Um, that like the thing that most people complained about the most is the thing that you um, are in search of right in the beginning of this game and. And right. mercifully, you do not find Navi at any point in the game. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but you sort of, um, you, do, you do find something unexpected, right? You find the Skull Kid, and he's wearing this creepy mask, and he steals your horse. And so you're, you're sort of like constantly um, being deprived of things from the start of this game. Like you leave the world that you're the hero of. You, you lose your horse. You've lost your fairy. You um, wind up losing your... Uh, human form briefly you know um, and it's it's only kind of in the course of the game that you start to understand uh, you know what what it is that you've kind of fallen into here um, it's but it's a really really interesting kind of uh, variation yeah on the on the Zelda themes well you're giving me so many interesting thoughts at this moment because the way that you can interpret Dante's dark wood is as um, either being a place of death and loss, a loss of life, but also a place of loss of sort of motivation because of a loss of goal. Maybe you've even finished something. And of course, he's referencing his own exile and being thrown out of his uh, sort of traditional dominance hierarchy of Florence and not knowing what to do with himself now that he's no longer sort of jockeying for political power with other um, white wealths who were expelled alongside him. And uh, so... It's interesting that you're so reduced as well, right? Like now you're back to Kid Link after having become an adult Link who could wield this legendary sword, this master sword in um, the Ocarina of Time. And now you're like reduced to not even having your own body for a time, sort of like the, the Satan in Milton who, who undergoes, uh, he turns into a frog, he turns into less and less epic creatures as you go throughout the book and then eventually uh, becomes a snake. Um, in, in the same way that Voldemort has a, is now physically deformed at, when he's reincarnated, right? After he loses his original body, he's more snake-like and actually keeps a snake familiar uh, around him. But interesting that what you've lost is Navi and you fulfilled your destiny and you're in a dark wood. Navi for navigation coming from the Latin navis comes from the Greek naus, which means ship, where we get the word nautical from. Um, but she is the thing that keeps reminding you of what you have to do. She's your fairy, and you actually meet a fairy or a, a sort of a woodland elf like you who wishes he had a fairy because he doesn't have any direction yet, right? You meet him in the first uh, town of Termina, and he says, you're so lucky to have a fairy. And what's just interesting about me is it's as if what Dante, or not Dante, but Link has done is achieved a goal, achieved what Navi was pulling him toward, achieved like that, that big life goal, a, a goal that... Uh, his conscience and motivational systems have been working towards, 
for, you know, as long as you played the game in Ocarina of Time. And then he finds himself in a place without that, a dark wood, and then finds a new goal. But what's interesting about that is that he's then humbled back to the first step. He has to go through the entire sort of quest process again. He can't come in riding on his horse, right? He has to, like Trajan, come down from his horse and humble himself. Um, and, I, well, I guess I was just wondering uh, whether you took either of those two interpretations for this dark wood and what you saw there, too. Uh, is Link dead? Has he met his destiny, literally speaking? Or uh, is this sort of supposed to be an ongoing metaphor for, you know, you, you finish one quest either in loss or victory, and then you move on to the next one? Don't know if I lost you there, Wes. Oh, oh sorry. I think I might have pushed the wrong button. I, I yeah. I I find it an interesting theory um, that he might be dead. That is, this is termina, like the end, or you know, destiny in the sense of of death as the ultimate end. Um, that you're headed towards your destination or whatever. Like I I think that there's some interesting ways that you can read the game uh, in terms of like grief and loss um, as the overarching um, kind of motifs. Um, but like I said, I, I, find, I find change and transformation or, or variation to be um, even more kind of salient uh, than, than that. And so I don't go the whole way and, and you know, theorize that Link is actually dead during this game, that this is a kind of afterlife or something. Um, I, I think that um, there's, there's something to that, but but in terms of like just following the story as it's presented um, and not not getting you know too interpretively creative with it, like I, I think that the better case is to be made that you know this is just like a weird um, sort of parallel world that he's stumbled into uh, and that he does eventually kind of um, go back to the rest of his heroic life um, without you know actually being reincarnated or something. But I don't know, like the uh, the way that, you know, uh, Skull Kid um, seems to be like playful uh, and, and that's something that kind of comes out as you go along. Um, he, he's like possessed by the mask, but he himself seems to be kind of this lost, you know, lost child, right? Like the... the um, uh, spirit of the woods or something like that that you're lost in at the beginning so that to me is um an interesting distinction um and and i think the the sense in which um link himself is like revealing who he is through these various masks as well um i, I find that to be the more interesting uh concept than than one of sort of life and death but like who your nature, what your nature is, and what what you can transform into. Um, well, I like you that. Find yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. Just in that, uh, you are what you make of yourself in this world. You you can't just rest on your your laurels. And I I do have some some potential connections to make back to um, the the afterlife uh, um, perspective a bit later. But I I do also take your point that through these various masks, it's very Shakespearean and that all the world's a stage and we, but the happy players on it. Uh, 
the beginning was quote, the second part was paraphrased. But it's interesting because these masks, and you know, I've been teaching um, plays lately and also preparing to teach plays, Oedipus, Tyrannus, and um, Antigone, where of course on the Greek stage, all the, 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 the men who were actors wore masks. And um, I'm also gearing up to teach Othello where there were still male actors, but I don't know that they had masks at that particular time, I imagine so, but I, I have to look that up. They, they may not have um, gap in my, my knowledge there, but you know, and I've recently watched Westworld that's so, that's so keen on the masks and the roles we play in. It's almost as if you learn who you are through the many roles you play and how well you play those roles. And that that sort of pastiche or collage or mural taken together in the, in the way that a mural can sort of show the tra transformation over time because of the amount of space and linearity of it. Um, I, I agree with you that, it, that this game, a major theme, may well be not only transformation from who you think you are into who you actually are through the vessel of a role and... Um, and role not just by having a mask, but having something to do within the world within a mask, having a, a, a narrative function, or not just a narrative function, but actually having tasks to complete as part of that role. Like when you're a teacher, you have to teach, you have to produce. And that those many roles, what this game is trying to show you is that that's who you are, not just one of them, but how you perform all of them. Is that in agreement with what you're saying? Right on, yeah. I think it's it's cool how you sort of do encounter that um, at the borderline of life and death in lots of cases, um, mm. or sort of in, in connection with loss, or at least the potential of, of loss. Um, but it does seem to me that like the way that that happens, yeah, is through um, action in the world, right? And not in some yeah. kind of like afterlife or some weird, you know, representation like you can sort of discern symbols and things in the game, but you know, I think taking it face value, it's, you know, it's an adventure game and you're doing a lot of um, impressive and, and heroic things like usual, but, but, but you do sort of in this one, you, you sort of uh, do that on behalf of a lot of different people um, that you, you encounter along the way. Um, right. You like one of the first things you, uh, you do is to, um, to uh, uh, complete this challenge with the kids of the town, right? You have to sort of prove yourself um, by uh, by catching them all at hide and seek, right? So you like prove that you're uh, able to keep up with them and, and play with them. Um, and then you uh, you briefly uh, are permitted to leave the town, um, but only through this like secret passage thing, right? Um, you you sort of are in engaged in this, uh, this kind of magical um, scientific lab that, in a way, it reminds me of Bugenhagen's, you know, observatory, yes. right? Is you have this like weird magician guy living there <laughs> with his chickens. Um, so it's like, <laughs> you know, from the start, you're sort of in kind of, in this whimsical way, um, you know, completing yeah various tasks, fulfilling certain roles, and um, and proving yourself, and sort of uh, gaining knowledge um, both about the place and about you know who you are and what your your capacity is um it's it's cool too um like the way that the game is structured of course you 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 have to continually restart and that to me is just uh 
that rings really true. Like, like you said, you, you start the game by having um, completed your great adventure. You know, you're, you've sort of let go a lot of that stuff and, and started over in a way. And, and in, in some sense, the whole game is a series of those, those kinds of starting overs. Um, but of course, you expand your limits of what you can do within each one um, after you kind of return to the beginning. So uh, I, I think it's just a really interesting way of playing with that idea. Well, that's great. And I, I mean, I think time is going to be a theme that we're going to return to over and over again and how we use our time and what this game is trying to tell us about the use of time and uh, what, what you can, what time you can get back and what that means to get time back and why it is valuable to have a chance to rerun a simulation in a more efficient or better way, uh, basically with uh, very low stakes, like how you can in this video game. I guess that was something I wanted to talk about next, just a little bit uh, of the difference between like a Sony or a Sega style game and the Nintendo game. Um, uh, the difference between the RPG that we just played with turn-based battle system and the active time battle system and random battles and leveling up in this sort of so-called action RPG, um, how it's different playing with um, a cartridge, uh, physically speaking, and uh, uh, against the disc and the difference in the controllers and just sort of how your memories of when the N64 first came out, because I, you know, I just got mine, I got it up and working, which is hard because I have an HDMI uh, uh, screen and I, so I have to splice a, an HDMI to RCA converter uh, between, between my, my monitor and my speakers. And I guess that's not that hard, but it's harder than what I did when I was 12, which was just plug it in. Um, and, and, and also just the style of this game and comparatively to Final Fantasy VII, I guess there are actually a lot of similarities, but I, you know, I even call it like a gonzo grotesque style, but that might also just be uh, partly because of the technology and the, the rest of the games that Nintendo has. So mm -hmm. I know that's a lot, but yeah. I, yeah, I don't remember too much about the, um, the difference. You know, I don't remember too much about the differences uh, in style between this at, at the time it came out and whatever Sega was doing. But like in general, Sega always tended to have a little bit more outlandish or like uh, uh, mature sort of like aesthetic to it, I guess. Yeah, um, like DC Marvel. And but so I like I never really played a lot of Sega games unless I was over at a friend's house or something. I always had Nintendo systems. I got a PlayStation because of Final Fantasy VII, basically, um, and other RPGs that you could play on there. And I, But I, I love the, uh, the kinds of gameplay that Nintendo games tended to have, right? Starting from like Mario um, and of course Zelda. The kinds of things that you can do in the game world are so much more interesting, so much more active. Like, you know, you can call it an active time battle in Final Fantasy VII, but it's still just like, you know, scrolling through menus and moving a cursor around. <laughs> it's, it's not that active. Um, so what, what you can do in, in Zelda games by comparison is um, practically infinitely more. Um, you, you, you're moving around in, moving the camera around with you. Uh, you're getting tools that you can use at any point, basically with a few exceptions, right? You can sort of try out different things. 
and make make experiments and see what happens if you try this or that um, in ways that you really can't uh, in a traditional RPG. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that there's, you know, pros and cons, of course, to every genre, and it's not for everyone, but, but I think in general, like, somebody just picking up a controller and starting to play would probably tend to get more immersed um, in, a, in a game like this, or like Mario, right, where you can sort of see what you're doing having consequences right away, um, and the world sort of reacting and responding at all times to, to things that you're trying to do. Um, it can, by the same token, be pretty frustrating because you actually have to have some skill at a certain right. point, right, to, to progress. You have to, like, train and practice, like, your actual ability to actually do something. Uh, you know, even if it's only, like, a certain sequence of button pushes when you get down to it. Like, the, it is a lot more than, like, you know, just grinding and leveling up and, you know, buying the best stuff or, or whatever it might be in, a, in an RPG. Um, maybe there's some strategy there that you might have to figure something out or solve a puzzle or whatever. But like in Zelda, you're constantly having to perform in a much more visceral kind of way. Um, so, I, I mean, the, the aesthetic of the game um, is by and large consistent, I think, with Ocarina of Time. Um, it's a little more cartoony in some ways. And yeah, some things are kind of more exaggerated, perhaps. Um, like the moon's face, for <laughs> example. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think overall, it's it is um, pretty recognizably, you know, within that um, Zelda sort of shading and lighting, and and I think um, the kind of the kinds of characters that you encounter, a lot of them are taken straight from uh, other games or will appear in in subsequent games. So clearly, they they kind of got a formula that they like. Um, and this one, you know, each one does kind of stretch and skew it in various ways, but this one's um, sort of working within that um, and developing that that great tradition. Well, and so what do you, I, I like what you had to say about real-time fighting and taking in more active hand. And I do recall that I was such an RPG player that I wasn't very good at action games. And so when I first played Devil May Cry, which I thought was just such a cool game and was actually actively made to be a cool game when it first came out that it, it broke my heart that I couldn't beat that first spider demon because I was so interested in the game, but I, I just didn't have that skill yet at it. And I, I, it's very interesting now being able to play a game that requires skill and now being capable of being patient enough to acquire the skill rather than just to expect um, initial results. And also something that's interesting about this game, and perhaps it's the same in an RP in the normal RPG, but I feel far less able to just randomly explore even though i can in a bigger way than i could in final fantasy 7 in some ways the world is somewhat smaller somewhat bigger um in, in that i can be running around for quite a bit of time but also just the map itself is not as big yet as final fantasy 7 but uh it takes me some time to get around but um just back to my sort of original um point uh, just to make sure that I can still even think about it, is that um, uh, it is a change having to, uh, you know, worry about falling and to have to jump from one place to another and having to get certain button combinations right. It is, um, it is challenging and mm -hmm. interestingly difficult. 
Oh yes. And now I recall the other point I was, I was going to make, which is just that I think part of the reason I wasn't as good at this sort of game earlier on is that you really have to follow the directions. And so I'm using mm -hmm. a strategy guide here and it's not always obvious what you have to do next in this game. Not as obvious, I would say, even as Final Fantasy VII, where most of the time you know where the next place is you're supposed to go, even if you don't know how to get there. Whereas in this game, even the initial tasks, you know, like finding the boys, you have to like run around the entire city and find where they are. And you, you know, you have a clock that's ticking on you the entire time. And so it's, it just feels a little less free than mm -hmm. uh, an RPG in, in that way. And, and many of these puzzles are rather puzzling. I don't know that I would be able to figure them out or at least figure them out in a reasonable amount of time without some additional sort of help from the game that's like, okay, well, you should probably go get this now and you can do this. And it's like, I had no idea about the bunny ears and where to go for them or the blast mask mask mm. that requires that you be at a place and like at 12 o'clock exactly on a very and uh, uh there's another mask you can get right in the laundry room but you have to go on the third day or something like that it's either you have to go i think it's you can go on the night of the third day and so you have to be manipulating time for that and just you have to know a lot of things as well mm. as be skilled in this game yeah i think a lot of that unfolds gradually which um, is not going to, like, in ways that it's not going to be immediately apparent. Um, some of the, the places that you can go right now, um, you will return to time and again, and only, you know, much later in the game, in terms of, like, you actually playing it, will you know how to, how to access certain things that, that have been there all along, right? But you just couldn't reach. Um, and so in that way, it's, again, like a really interesting representation of reality as kind of this, you know, this state in which in some ways everything is right there, but it's taken us, you know, thousands of years to figure out like how to harness certain energies or, or you know, properties of nature, right? So, I, I mean, the, the way that this game um, sort of leads you is, yeah, a little less linear in, in some ways because it'll set you tasks or, um, you know, challenges, which um, are sort of structured by the environment, right? So it's like, it does, sometimes it doesn't have to tell you what you need to do, you just need to um, try to progress, and you'll sort of see what has to happen for that to work. Um, and so it's a matter of like, yeah, building skill. But other times, it's like, you, you have a bunch of different directions available to you, like you're in the town, you can talk to anyone, you can go anywhere pretty much. Um, and so it's sort of a matter of just trying a lot of things out until you find um, that doing, you know, blowing a bubble at that balloon, you know, will, uh, will trigger this other event. And then you, you, you're kind of off on this, this other uh, track. But yeah, you can, you can learn tons of other things going on in town um, and just not be able to do anything about them just yet. <laughs> so so it's it sort of, it delimits um, that is the game delimits uh, your your capacities um, in in kind of interesting ways, uh, which which only through a various like explorations and um, and different changes that you undergo uh, will you be able to sort of su supersede and and like overcome um, some of these these problems that you're faced with.
and and those those kids you know later will give you once you're once you're human and you talk to them again and do the whole thing again i think they they give you this little notebook which is pretty critical because it sort of keeps track for you of a lot of the the information and characters and challenges and things that you you hear about um so the game does kind of um act as your memory in a way and, and lays it out for you visually to see like what's going on at different times and different um, characters' timelines. Uh, but even then, yeah, there's certain things that to accomplish them, you pretty much need to uh, go online and, and ask someone <laughs> or look it up in a strategy guide. Um, there's, there's some really arcane stuff. Well, it's interesting too because just you know part of this project is the psychological aspect and i did play ocarina of time when i was younger and what's interesting also about my my attitude towards playing and my general strategy is that it, it would not have worked here it was usually to play very very hard at first and then lose almost all my steam when the novelty of the game wore off and then go buy a new game because i had a job in high school and could do that um and so with a game like this, it, it rewards diligence and you really have to build on what you've started. And so it requires that you sort of supply the coherent narrative and the sort of um, consistent effort over time, much like when you're studying uh, in a class. Um, and I, I do think it actually takes that much time. Like it takes an hour or two each time you play because it's actually very hard to save. And if you're in the middle of a quest, you really only get like that one time when you you hit an owl statue and if you start back up after that you uh you know you you have to resave or you lose your your progress and so i i think that's that's pretty it's interesting to see how my my strategy for that game was also my strategy for so many other endeavors including like my jujitsu career and why i would have only gotten to a certain level uh at any of these these Un potential unfoldings of reality in my life because my strategy was the same for them all. So of course I got to the same place um, with them all. And it's interesting to see the game th thus as a reflection, as a, a mask that shows uh, the same face back to me in sort of a narcissistic or Medusa-like way. But that, that makes me want to ask you this next question, which is what is the place of narrative and the voice and dialogue in this game, and especially compared to Final Fantasy VII, which seems so narratively driven. Though you just sent me that very interesting article about how it's very poorly translated, and that does make a big difference, but you never hear Link's voice here. And just the dialogue is pretty thin. You don't get a ton of cutscenes, though you do get some. Uh, but also a lot of the characters laugh at you in an odd, creepy way, like the mask salesman, who I'd like to talk about at some point. The, the uh, the great fairy, when she turns back into herself, when she reunifies as her Sephirothian and Genova-like reunion, she she has that hoarse, stringent laugh that ah ha 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 ha, um, and a lot of people just have sort of creepy giggles towards you when you talk to them. And well, so I wanted to ask you about the place of dialogue and the fact that this character doesn't have a voice. Are are we supposed to be him, or what's going on here? Yeah, it's interesting. Like that's that's a thing that goes way back. I feel like, and in most RPGs, that's kind of the the default is like you talk to people and they say stuff, but your character never says anything. Um, that that's kind of a a cliche, I guess, to the point that you know Earthbound will make fun of it from time to time, um, but but does more or less follow it as well. So uh, in in this case, 
Link is very expressive, like his face shows a lot of expression. Um, and, and that's pointed out to you, actually, I think in one of the, the scenes, maybe the Skull Kid is mocking you and he, he says, look at this sad look on your face or something like that. I forget who it is. But, um, but like you, you can notice that. And the cutscenes in this, um, they fall within the normal graphics of the game. Although I think some movements and things are, are, are not possible otherwise, but, but they are at least like the same graphics. So there's a kind of um, smoothness to the storytelling, which isn't the case with Final Fantasy VII. You have these very elaborate, um, you know, computer-generated graphics that happen at certain times, um, but then the rest of the game is, is a lot sort of more, um, let's say it's in your imagination that you have to kind of fill in some of the, the space between polygons. Um, and you do, you know, pretty effortlessly after a while, but, but it's, it's jarring, the difference between the two, the cutscenes and the normal gameplay. Um, and yeah, so in this game, I think that a lot of the story is is supplied by the player um, because your emotions are, are going to kind of overlap with links to some extent. And um, a lot of, you know, the ways that characters talk to you or, or you know, make weird sound effects like laughter um, will kind of cue you in to, to what Link is feeling and, and thus what you're supposed to be sort of undergoing um, sympathetically. And the, um, again, the narrative is pretty much a, um, a kind of outline, like a, a, a sketch. Um, it's not going to give you the, the kind of depth um, of character development that Final Fantasy does. It's not going to involve quite the same um, intricacy, right, of, of uh, themes and stuff. Um, but it, what it does present in terms um, of a, like, you know, this mythological frame story of the, the four giants who can save the world from the, the moon falling, you know, it's, it's actually not that different, I think, from the underlying, you know, save the world sort of structure uh, of lots of these games. Um, and so the, the, the variations that it puts on that, um, the ways that it plays with, um, you know, humor or grief, uh, with exploration, with, um, you know, skill, th those kinds of things um, are kind of embedded in the gameplay and um, they're less kind of wordy, you know, there, there isn't quite so much uh, long, you know, explanations or histories or stuff like that. Instead, it's, it's in these kinds of um, playful moments. It's in these actions that you undertake. Um, and, you know, I think there, there's definitely articles out there, like the one you sent me, <laughs> that go into a lot more, um, go to a lot more pains to try to reconstruct like a, a overarching narrative of some kind. But, but that doesn't seem to be quite the emphasis, right? It, it does seem to be a lot more on like, you know, what can you do in this situation to, to try to make it a little better? And, um, you know, start over again and get a little further next time, which I think is, you know, in its own way, really deep and, and satisfying. Right. I wonder if it's almost like the same thing as an, a traditional RPG, but for an earlier developmental level, like it's more action than narrative. Narrative's a more sophisticated thing that you can follow when you get a little older and you don't need to be moving around all the time. And also it's sort of like fairy tale or folk tale in terms of 
um, how the themes are shown. So uh, even though the message underlying can be rather sophisticated, the symbols themselves can be sort of very straightforward. Like the two fairies that you meet, one is dark purple, one is white. So they're like dark side, light side. And then this antagonist uh, who gets separated from you by a wall, he who then puts a mask on you as a reflection of him but in weakness rather than his strength, he gets separated with this dark fairy, you with this light fairy. And so you're like a yin and yang together. He's like antagonist and you are protagonist. And the sim the symbology of that is just, it's, it's I don't want to, it's not simplistic so much as it, it is appropriate to uh, an earlier developmental level of story. It's like folktale, whereas uh, Final Fantasy VII is like the accumulation of a folktale through a poet's voice into like an epic though I wouldn't necessarily call it an epic. It's somewhere between drama and epic, though. Um, and, yeah, I wonder if that's what you think. Do you agree with that analysis of of the game in that respect? Yeah, that's, that's I think, a very good way to put it. And the, the fairy tale thing, um, that, that is kind of the way that the, the game presents itself as well. It, it has these kind of terse um, blocks of text on a black background, like saying, okay, so who you are and what's going on. Um, and then you sort of, you know, images and, and like you described some really prominent ones start to sort of carry you along. Um, even to, uh, to a literal point, like later in the game, I think it is, I don't know if you can do it right away, but you can talk to the granny in the, in the inn and she'll tell you stories. She'll tell you the fairy tales um, that lay kind of not that, much in the background of of the uh, events of the story, and so you sort of see them presented, um, yeah, schematically and like appropriately for for a kid um, being told stories by his granny. You know, so it's it's really nice, um, and I like that you can kind of move, uh, you can dig into those those symbols. You know, you can you can look at them a little bit more once you've had more exposure to to other and more complex kinds of storytelling. Um, the symbols themselves, yeah, are, they, they seem, I think, simple, um, but, but the, they're, they're kind of bottomless once you start digging right. down into them, you know? And, and that's really cool. Um, but I think that that's, you know, part of what we're, we're doing with this project as a whole, right? Is kind of returning to some of these, these games and giving them a more um, fine, uh, appreciation, right, and finer treatment uh, than just playing them. Right, and I mean, even if you look at the symbol, the fact that you meet the old wise man sort of god figure, and I would say that the mask salesperson seems sort of like a god figure as well, and like a dispenser of destiny, but you look through this man's telescope, and you see a moon, you see a tear fall from the the eye of the moon, but then you see you, you look back to the city itself and you find the source of the problem and that's like the antagonist evil version of you who has a fairy jumping on top of a clock tower as a symbol of time. It's, it's almost as if what you're doing is like in the Phaedrus where Socrates says, so many people are talking about centaurs and, and, and you know, half, half breed this and crazy celestial mechanics that, but I don't even understand myself. Where it's like what what it is that this sort of figure of the divine is trying to point you towards is looking in an Aristotelian way into the city 
and the things that actually happen in time in this active way you were talking about. And that the, the source of all the problem is, is you and the evil decisions you make if you take uh, Skull Kid with his great power and his dark fairy to be sort of like what you could have been after achieving your destiny if you didn't then humble yourself afterwards or if you just take him as the antagonist as the dark half of lake um and you know the fact that he wears a mask too but a mask of pride that makes him powerful and like sephiroth wants to destroy the world because of his isolation um within it um you know i also make that luciferian connection between them because a he isolates himself b he's crying when you first meet him c he communes with two different fairies and ends up with the dark fairy sort of an Anakin Skywalker, Luciferian sort of way. You know, better, to, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. He, 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 he decides to go for ultimate isolation, right? Annihilation. So I guess I said two different things there. I made connections between um, Skull Kid and Lucifer, as well as trying to, trying to make the case that potentially these symbols are bottomless, like you said. And part of the, the emphasis of the game is not to look outside for your problems, but to look potentially within not only your immediate surroundings and society and environment, but even in your effect on them. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, the, the one thread I think I'd pick up from there uh, to, to go a little further with is the, the mask salesman um, as, as a, a kind of divine figure. Um, he, he's, he's quite ambiguous, right? He's not clearly good or evil. Right. Um, He's, he's in possession, or he was in possession, of this clearly evil mask, right? But it's one of many masks. It's, it's, there's, he's got this huge pack on his back, like at all times. It's, it's um, chock full of masks. I think one of which is a Mario mask, if you look closely, right? Mm. So, he, so he's like sort of this, um, yeah, he's, a, he's sort of a spinner of destiny, um, but he seems to have been tricked, right, by the Skull Kid. He, he's... Yes. He's been swindled uh, and he stole his mask, right? So he needs you. He needs your help. He can't, he, he apparently can't directly intervene, right? He can't go get the mask himself, which is interesting, right? Because he seems to have some pretty amazing powers. He can whip a, uh, a giant pipe organ out of nowhere and sit down <laughs> and play it, right? Surely he could do some, some creepy uh, teleportation type, you know, magic to go and get that mask back. But no, you know, it seems to be against the rules. He can never, never like um, directly intervene in the world in that way. So, so it's kind of cool. Like he, uh, he teaches you the song of healing, of course, which um, you're going to be using throughout the game uh, in, in key moments um, to heal other people. But the first and maybe sort of underlying, you know, healing that happens is, is for you. Right. And so you, you are, um, set free of that spell that was that was placed on you and you seem to sort of make peace with the spirit of the uh deku scrub that had possessed you right you, yes. you waving at it as it walks away rather than running from it in terror and being you know attacked by it so there there's a sense in which like you know he represents then the mescalesman this kind of healing this kind of order but in another way he he's such a creepy um uh he has this this ominous music that accompanies him and it and it changes its tempo and his his face is just so scary <laughs> um that that i i 
I don't know quite what to make of him, uh, frankly. And, and I think that that's deliberate. And I think it's, it's quite interesting um, for, for sort of the overall um, effect that the game has, right? There, there's senses in which it is a clear, right? Good and evil, light and dark kind of thing. But there's this other sense in which it's something else, you know, it's, it's got this, this wrinkle in it. Um, and, and that that can bring healing to me is very interesting. Yeah, I also see the connection that, um, you know, he bears something on his back in sort of a Christo fair sort of way or a Christ sort of way. And um, it is interesting that he has to open his eyes and look at you from his usual sort of solipsistic closed eyes, Brock from Pokemon sort of way. (laughs) uh, The most interesting thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, I think, when when you are first cursed with the Deku mask being un, uh, being intentionally put on you, but against your will, and you run from this sort of fate and it consumes you, and then you are unwill or unwillingly made into a Deku who can't untransform. But then when he teaches you this song of healing, this sort of harmonious balance restorer, then you acquire the power like unlike Lupin as a werewolf to be more like an animagus like uh, Sirius or James. And you, you can then become the Deku when you need to. And you still have a horrifying animation when you do that, where you scream, right? You're like, ah, and you turn into it. But what did you see in the difference between when you run from this sort of danger or this fate and it consumes you against your will as opposed to when you face it and make peace with it, it then becomes part of your sort of conscious or volitional repertoire. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's an interesting commentary, I, I guess, on the way that what is your greatest problem will sort of become your greatest asset if, if you can overcome it, right? Like, you, that's, that's what learning sort of is in, in some sense. It's a, it's a confrontation with an unknown and maybe uh, ominous or at least sort of oppressive uh, problem and, and a, a process of like understanding and dealing with that, which, you know, then you can sort of call upon um, just in the sense of like general abstract way of like, I can overcome big problems, but also in like particular things, like I can, you know, shoot bubbles when I put this mask on. Right. And that's kind of handy. Or I can like dig down into flowers and jump up really high and, and spin like all of that stuff I think is you, you could put like a literal reading on it but like you know just to look at it generally it's like those are things that you only are able to do because you you sort of ran into this problem right and you faced it and you and you overcame it um, that's so cool to me like that that suggests to me that you know Link in some sense he, he does represent the child in the sense of the child's like right. infinite potential right like he can be anything he can transform into anything and and his limits are, are simply that of, you know, a circumscribed amount of time uh, in which to sort of make decisions and, and take actions. Um, but it's, it's so cool because this game frees you from consequences. I think like you were saying earlier, like you can simulate things over and over. You don't have to be bound by certain choices um, indefinitely. You can go back and try something different next time. And so in that way, it's, it's a kind of story of... Um, you know, human beings understanding that their nature is is variant, right? And like we are not necessarily bound to make the same kinds of 
errors over and over. Like individuals have have a short time perhaps, and and that's like driven home by the the clock, right? But but in some sense, like we can we can learn from history, we can learn from uh, simulations or whatever it might be from stories, essentially, and and transmit that through language and through um, different kinds of play and and other practices and. And we can sort of do a little better next time. Like I think there's a there's a certain optimism to that. Um, yeah, you know, and, along with the the weird you know fate you know constraining you kind of thing, which is which is also there. You know, that's almost Pauline in that it's like the day of judgment is coming. But that that's also a major theme both in Final Fantasy VII, which the image that is on that that is inscribed with the name is a meteor coming down on you. And this game, obviously the major image is the moon coming down at you that, you know, the jaws of fate, as Patroclus called them, will crunch you at some point. So you better pursue your interests and do things while you're alive. And that is literally what that other figure of God, that astronomer, that professor says to you too, right? He says, I always tell the young to pursue their interests. Again, throwing in those like pieces of wisdom that I recall you often noticing from the NPCs when you're playing Earthbound. Um, and like the old lady who says growing old is hard. And it's like, that just seems like such a bit of throwaway dialogue. But if you really sit down and think about it, it's like both of us are getting to middle age where we're no longer going to be focused on growing into what we are, but how to gracefully sort of be what we are as we start to decline, which will be extremely humbling and painful. Right. And so the game is preparing you even for that. It's like, you know, like you said, pursue these infinite possibilities while you can because time is passing and you might as well become something become something interesting and useful and helpful and in fact that is part of how the game ends too right because something i read on the strategy guide is that the more people you help out in your journal the differing ending the more different the ending is and so it's it's like a human life in that the things you do are your life and influence the world around you um and so I just think that that's very interesting that, again, these lessons are in there. And again, just like with Final Fantasy VII, the lesson does not seem to be that you should stay in this estuary forever, but to understand it, you know, to take it for what it is as a tool to help you grow up and then to grow up into the sort of person that um, implements and shares these, these lessons that one learned what, by playing the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like when you, when you save the game, you, you strike the owl with your sword. Yeah, right? like that that's so interesting. It's like now it's time to you know inscribe what I've done and um and with wisdom and with with the uh, the the sword of of thought, right? Like jump out of this world and back into the real world or, or something like that, right? Of course, you, you'll later learn a you know an, a song that lets you travel around to different owl statues. So it's like it's kind of this liminal place between. Um, the game and and uh, and reality. So yeah, I, I like that a lot. That's that's a cool, um, just sort of like meta sense in which the game is is teaching at all times. It's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's part of why it's so interesting to us, and even as kids, and why we have a nostalgia for it. Because again, there are clear boundaries to it, clear rules, and you get to you get to walk the path of the hero essentially for free. You just have to spend your time and energy. I think that might be something that we forget when we become adults that, you know, and especially now these days when we understand sort of our evolutionary heritage and, and the fact that we do degenerate and die and that that is 
part of what the Adam and Eve story tells us and that that does go well in line with the fact that we understand that we have, you know, these, this DNA within us, which are our genetics, which sort of creates bodies each generation in order to react to the social and natural environment. And that, you know, that can be a sort of thought that creates great nihilism in you. I've been talking about this quite a bit with my students in these tragedies where, you know, in Othello, this great man is taken down. Julius Caesar, this great man is taken down. Uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, this great man is taken down. Antigone, this great woman is taken down. These people who are great are eventually fall, always. Achilles falls, Dante falls, all of them, they fall and they experience horrible tragedies. And it's as if we we come to understand that point, but we forget that what the solution to that is, the way to get out of that dark wood, is to again jump on the path of the hero. Try and do good things for other people, even if they're small, like what Link is doing here. Like, you know, raising somebody's cuckoos with a funny song, because that's all he wants to see because he has no time left. Or I think it's Grog who it's like that. Uh, and, uh, or, or, you know, uh, catching one piece of a fairy and getting it back to somebody, these childish tasks. It's again, like humility uh, in order to fight the good, big uh, battle of good versus evil. You need to be willing to like teach a kid how to tie their shoes or to take out the trash or something like that. And that even that is the path of the hero for you um, as a human. And there's nothing you like more than that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I love when, you know, in these kinds of great epic games, you get to do some of those, those small, weird little everyday sorts of tasks. Um, those, those are often some of the, the side quests, right, that, that are so kind of uh, easily overlooked, right, or, or hard to find, however you want to look at it. Um, but that sort of often give you some of the, the most um, beneficial, right, rewards and memories, like, of the game, like just, just those, those funny little moments. Yeah, and who knows what funny little moments will be remembered from from these many, many podcasts we've done together now, (laughs) almost 300. Um, And so pretty good work for the last year and a half or so. Of course, we're still very early uh, on on the hill of this mountain, but you know, maybe the best thing is to get to be on the hill for the longest amount of time. Um, And that's what we can hope for. And so there's a purgatory and time reference uh, as we talk about this clock tower, which is itself a a metaphor for purgatory, right? A giant mountain with time on it that teaches you a lesson or keeps you keeps reminding you of the boundaries. Like a wall in a city, the clock tower is another form of boundary that is always reminding you of your limited nature. But that there's no game without limits, without boundaries. You know, you need to define the space of the game. And maybe that's really good. Um, and maybe that's why we can do good things because of those boundaries. And so this game's got us thinking deep, right? Yeah. Go on Wes, please. No, I just, just agreeing. It's like, that's, that's where you start and that's where the final, you know, confrontation is, is gonna, gonna take place as well. You can tell from the beginning. Um, yeah. Well, this has been great and I'm totally renewed and vigor and a new console, a new, a new company and maybe we can talk to some people. I mean, I definitely want to talk to some people that want to talk about what happened, 
like how it felt when the N64 first came out, because I would love to talk a little bit about it. And maybe we can do our own diversions and side quests into other games where like, I really want to talk about the experience of seeing Mario 64 and playing it for the first time. And just how yeah. this, these yeah. new games are new worlds and that you do actually act and live and hope and throw emotion in different ways into them. And even now as an adult, knowing that this is sort of a, a, a nerdy thing to do, I still take, and you know, thinking that when I was 15 that I would have pleasures far beyond video games, it's like, well, think about what a video game is. It's like the ultimate pleasure getting to, uh, especially for a competitive you know, male, it's like you get to run a competitive atmosphere over a simulation over and over again and get better and better results. It's like, that's, that's really quite fun. That doesn't ever become less fun, especially if it doesn't hurt your body or take too much physical energy. And, um, and you know, emperors of Rome did not have access to pleasures like these. And I take that seriously, but, um, it is, it's just very interesting coming back to this and, and experiencing so much joy and playing it as well as the joy of getting to talk about it and finally unpack it. It's, it's as if we are now entering an old world anew, uh, like you were saying, and seeing so much more potential in it than we, we ever did when we were younger. We saw the world in a, or at least I saw the world in a far uh, simpler or more simplistic, less rich and vibrant and symbolically meaningful way. Or at least that was all unconscious. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to, um, yeah, getting a few other friends on here and maybe just people who are kind of in this world a little bit more as well. Um, yeah. Also, like seeing seeing some other perspectives on it. But but yeah, I agree. It's it's such a it's a cool experience and I think a very rich one to uh, to get to delve into and learn from. For sure, we're truly in. Uh, the the halls of Doran and uh, taking the treasure that Smaug had had for so long uh, defended. And so, <laughs> to, uh, might as well embrace who we are. And these are the worlds we've created for ourselves, so we might as well understand them. Yes. All right. All right. Well, until next time, we're going to have a little bit of a break because I'm going on spring break. You're going on spring break. Potter's Pocket is going to be at Norwest Con. Awesome. Or oh, yeah. rather, Conversations of the okay. Linky Cauldron now. Yep, yep. Uh, that will be in a couple weekends from now. But yeah, that will be awesome. Yeah. Well, looking forward to hearing that from you all when I get back from the beach. Uh, speaking of storybook. Uh, things to do uh, or archetypal things to do. Got to return <laughs> to the origin. <laughs> All right. Till then. See ya.